This is episode 49 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Dr. Jim Coyle. He is a board-certified specialist in swallowing disorders. He teaches courses in the master's program in SLP, clinical doctorate in medical SLP program, and supervises undergraduate and graduate student dysphagia research at the University of Pittsburgh. Coyle evaluates patients and teaches clinical practicum in UPMC hospitals and is funded by the NIH to investigate the use of technology and signal processing in the screening and treatment of dysphagia. Other research includes the effects of exercise in relating dysphagia caused by radiation therapy for head and neck cancer and investigation of brain networks related to swallowing function. He's a fellow of ASHA and received the University of Pittsburgh Chancellor's Distinguished Teaching Award in 2016. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Hello, Jim. Hi, Teresa. How's it going? Great. How are you? Good. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Thank God. (laughs) Um, Thank you so much for joining me, joining all of us. I know a lot of people are excited to hear from you and hear your opinion on a few hot topics. So, Well, let's get into it then. Yeah. All right. Well, first, if anybody doesn't know Dr. Coyle, can you tell everyone a tiny bit about yourself? Oh, okay. Um, I uh, am a professor at the University of Pittsburgh Department of Communication Science and Disorders. I do things in all of the academic programs, uh, the you know master's level, all both of the clinical and research doctorate. Uh, we have a couple of research studies ongoing now funded by the NIH to look at uh, technology and its potential in dysphagia assessment and possibly treatment. And I see patients in the hospitals a couple days a week, teach classes a couple days a week, and do research a couple days a week. And if you add that all up, it's more than five days a week. <laughs> but <laughs> but that's that's how it goes. That's the nature of the beast. Right. Well, so it's, it's, I guess, encouraging to hear that you do spend time in the clinic and you do spend time with patients too. And I know that you're kind of one that we all feel like we can relate to because you do see the patients and you're not just spitting out research left and right. So yeah, that's, it's, it's, it's really important. You know, it's, it's easy to quickly lose track of what's going on because things change so quickly. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. Be able to do that. Very lucky. Yeah. Okay. So I think the first hot topic that you know, people want to cover is the doctors seem to just use this blanket term of aspiration pneumonia. Mm-hmm. And I know that you've, um, you know, have, have some opinions about using just that blanket term, not really opinions, but actual facts about how it may not always be the case. Sure. Well, uh, first, you know, aspiration, the, the word aspiration has kind of taken on a, a life of its own. And I think personally, that our profession is somewhat responsible for that by focusing very narrowly on one source of aspiration, that is from the mouth, Uh, when in reality, aspiration is any, you know, gravity-dependent material entering the airway below below the larynx. And so, based on that definition, we all know that aspiration from the stomach is a is a not uncommon 
uh, issue. In fact, just this week alone, I've seen two patients, both of whom had uh, one witness and one unwitnessed cardiac arrests. Uh, and in the process of uh, resuscitation, had an emesis and clearly aspirated, all nicely documented by the EMS. Uh, but by the time the patient had been in the hospital a couple of days and the uh, diagnosis aspiration pneumonia was placed on the case, all of a sudden it became um, uh, an issue because swallowing was considered to be the source. Um, and so I guess the first and most important thing that uh, it would be useful to have physicians and others clarify uh, and keep clarifying in the record is the source of aspiration. The reason it's so much more important now is because with e-records, things get copied and pasted and perpetuated infinitely. Um, and as we all know now, a person comes back six months later for something else and will now forever have a prior history of aspiration pneumonia. So it has to be really clear, clearly specified what the source was. Secondly, the um, when a person does have this uh, emesis or reflux-related aspiration syndrome, which some can call uh, aspiration pneumonitis if it's a if it's a non-infectious aspiration, chemical pneumonitis, or I just prefer to call it non-dysphagia-related aspiration pneumonia. Um, it's important to understand the differences between uh, the features, the clinical features of a patient who actually has this infectious pneumonia versus those who have other non-infectious syndromes. Unfortunately, and probably necessarily in some cases, the diagnosis is made uh, on the basis of less information than the American Thoracic Society recommends be used to confirm that diagnosis, uh, pneumonia in particular. Um, and so uh, the presence of chest infiltrates in specific areas are often solely used to confirm the diagnosis. Uh, the uh, patient who's then diagnosed with a pneumonia is most often treated with antibiotics. And from that point forward, the clinical features of pneumonia, so fever, elevated white blood cells, um, evidence of colonized sputum and, and other, other things, may be masked by the antimicrobial treatment if the patient indeed has a pneumonia. Or if they don't, if they've had a chemical pneumonitis with a non-infectious source, uh, the fact that they're taking antibiotics uh, leads to um, failure of those signs and symptoms to develop. In other words, we don't know once the antibiotics began whether this is an infectious or non-infectious process. It's not to say that a person who has an emesis aspiration and by the way, so emesis typically is sterile. Uh, one of the one of the hallmarks of uh, of um, you know, post anesthesia aspiration, emesis aspiration, is that the contents of the stomach are sterile because the pH of the stomach is is inhospitable to microorganisms to survive. Um, so a person can aspirate this stuff, and by the way, it's nasty stuff that can cause death. I mean, it's not a trivial problem, but the point is that. It itself is not infectious. People then who are intubated and undergo a variety of other you know, invasive um, respiratory interventions can develop a secondary pneumonia as a result from other causes secondary to their treatment, not the original cause. So it can be um, um, difficult to track down the exact source, especially in people who've been in the ICU for a long time. Both syndromes are naturally are very um, problematic 
Uh, older, more frail people have more problems, as we, as we all understand. I don't think that's uh, news to anyone. In, uh, in reviewing the medical record, what's important is for the clinician, so that's like you and me, to be able to read the medical record and attempt to identify, locate and identify the different um, clinical signs confirming or refuting the diagnosis of pneumonia. Understanding chest film reports is a great example. Um, you know, whenever I give a talk, I use the following example of a you know, typical X-ray, chest X-ray, AP, plain, portable chest film, right? Uh, report that we see probably five, six times a day, uh, in which the interpretation is something like this. Uh, basal or atelectasis versus infiltrates. Clinical correlation is recommended, right? Well, some clinicians would latch on to the term basal or and infiltrates and nothing else and kind of omit um, paying attention to the parts that say clinical correlation is recommended and the part that says versus. In that interpretation, what the radiologist is basically saying is there's a shadow down here and it could be either caused by this or that, but based on this sole film, I can't tell you whether it's one or the other. And so they're expressing their uncertainty. Um, I think we need to be able to catch that and not just look for the words that confirm the, the suspected diagnosis and move forward from there. Um, so that's one example. All right. So let me let me back you up a little bit. So as far as knowing the pneumonia, you know, where it came from, mm -hmm. the, the aspiration pneumonia diagnosis, is that something that, so I'm just Sally SLP, is that something that I could discuss with the doctor? about where perhaps this, you know, I think of a patient that may have no signs or symptoms of dysphagia, no prior history of dysphagia, but like you said, may come in from trauma or something and all of a sudden have this label of aspiration pneumonia. How do we as clinicians go about finding that information? Well, most of it should be documented. I mean, it's people who come in, you know, I, I, different settings are different. I mean, I, I see people in a tertiary hospital and also in a community hospital. So in the community hospital, the the um, person who may be institutionalized is admitted after three days of feeling crappy, uh, enters the hospital, has a fever, isn't eating much, is kind of sleepy, um, and uh, and the diagnosis of aspiration pneumonia is made. And it's kind of straightforward, especially if the patient has um, a history of a, con a condition, a diagnosis that causes dysphagia. People cannot, people do not aspirate and get pneumonia who do not have a disease that causes dysphagia. So in the absence of a disease that causes dysphagia, it's really hard to make a strong case for dysphagia being the cause. So you're saying the medical history is important. It's probably the most important. Yeah. I mean, you, you can't have dysphagia unless you have dysphagia. Yeah. Uh, and as defined, dysphagia is not a disease. It's just a, a symptom of a disease or, a, or an outcome of disease. Uh, that's not to say that people who, especially in the case scenario I just mentioned, elderly, frail, decompensated people, it's not to say that when they have pneumonia, they don't become acutely dysphagic. I mean, we've all seen elderly, frail people with pneumonia who are barely functioning. And certainly at the time that we see them in acute care, regardless of how they got pneumonia, they're very sick and may have an acute dysphagia. And in that scenario, you know, my job is to do whatever is necessary to prevent another accident from happening while they're so acutely ill. 
Um, but in looking back at the history of the same person, if there is no diagnosis, you know, neurological diagnosis, head and neck cancer treatment, all of the, you know, the list of things we know cause dysphagia. Uh, if it's absent, then we have to conclude that there was, um, that dysphagia was a, a highly unlikely cause of this patient's pneumonia. And the point being that the interventions that we place during this acute stage at some point have to be withdrawn. We can't prepare. So it means don't just slap thick and liquids on them and walk out the door. And have them be discharged to a nursing home. Yeah. And six months later, they're showing up in my clinic for a swallow study, begging to have their feeding tube removed or to get right. puree food. And I do my thing and everything's back to baseline. And I look like Santa Claus because I get to right. you can do whatever you want, but really. That's why I love my job. Right, right. I look great every day. Yeah, well, or, or, or the opposite. Um, but the point is this person has had to suffer for this period of time with uh, with these restrictions. So not only not walking away, but also I think um, we probably need to do a better job in follow-up, uh, you know, getting following those patients to those, uh, you know, discharge destinations and making sure that someone is aware uh, enough to continue screening the person until they look like they're back to a reasonable baseline. I mean, especially when patients are discharged back to institutions that they came from, where all the caregivers are familiar with, uh, so that those restrictions can be removed. Yep, absolutely. All right. So let's talk about what is important to know on chest x-rays. You know, I I think for a lot of SLPs, that's really not something that we're taught, you know, in grad school or, and then we get out working and all of a sudden we look at this x-ray and like you said, what's, what's important here? Yeah. Well, that's because you didn't go to the University of Pittsburgh. That's exactly <laughs> it. <laughs> but, um, uh, well, I sent you a, a, a citation, I think, for this um, document that was published by members of the American Thoracic Society who um, have um, kept an updated glossary of terms for uh, chest, chest radiography called the Fleischner Society Glossary uh, of Chest Imaging Terms. And one of the one of the things I discovered the first time I read this, uh, first of all, what I did was it's alphabetized. It's kind of like a little dictionary, and so I kind of flipped through looking at the ones I was familiar, the terms I knew that that are thrown around all the time, you know. Uh, and one of the really interesting things I found was the definition of the word infiltrate. Um, and if you look at that, and again, this is written by radiologists to radiologists, uh, and so the term infiltrate. Uh, was interesting. What the part of the definition uh, is, this term is no longer recommended. The the issue is that infiltrates, the definition of infiltrates is that something solid or liquid, so something non-gas, gaseous, has um, entered the alveoli, occupying space that should be air-filled, or is occupying the interstitial spaces around the alveoli, so within the lung. Well, a chest x-ray by its nature is, you know, nothing more than radiation-based shining a flashlight on your hand to make little animals on the wall, right? Like we used to yeah. do kids. There's, there's a, a shadow cast on the x-ray film when things that are denser than air are in the space between the x-ray machine and the film. And because of the um, nature of infiltrates, which are three-dimensional, they're inside the alveoli, Shadows on the x-ray that are not intraalveolar may appear to be possibly intraalveolar because they're in the area where there are alveoli, which is basically all of the lungs. Um, and so 
radiologists are, are recommended by this uh, you know, group to stop using the word infiltrates and simply use the term opacity, which simply says a shadow. I see a shadow. And that other clinical correlations need to be made. Uh, for example, we just looked at a chest film the other day, and clearly not only were there basal or infiltrates in both bases, but the material that had infiltrated the, the bases had clearly inflamed the airways leading to the basilar segments. And so we could see a big track of uh, basal or secondary bronchus, uh, you know, inflammation that, that showed up on the film. So it looked like a little tree, down, downways facing tree with a lot of leaves that were blossoming, which were where the infiltrates were. Um, so chest films are just inaccurate by their nature. In fact, they're, they're screening tests. You know, chest film is no different to chest radiography than the, you know, water swallow protocol is to swallowing diagnosis. Um, and so other things in addition to the presence of infiltrates or opacities in a chest film need to be um, present also. So that's, that's, that's an important one. Another one that uh, gets a lot of traction is this whole right lower lobe you know, myth. Um, you know, I've, uh, I teach a head and neck anatomy course and, and in, in it, we, I have a cadaver that we dissect, you know, all, including the digestive, the chest cavity and the, and the abdominal cavity. And, and I've taught anatomy for a number of years. And I guess the bottom line is, you know, the orientation of the right and left main stem bronchi are not very different from one another as they take off from the carina. That is the angle the myth is that the right main stem is vertical, directly below the trachea, therefore all aspirated material ends up on the right base. And that's just not the case. Uh, either, either base is equally suspicious. And so, um, you know, if the clinician reads a chest film report that says left basilar infiltrates and concludes that this could not be caused by dysphagia-related aspiration, you know, they may be really wrong. Yeah. So that's another uh, you know, really important thing to think about when looking at, at chest film reports. I think a lot of people don't consider positioning too. You know, I mean, if you have someone that's completely slumped over, then it's going that direction. It's not, you know, a surefire into the right lower lobe. So exactly. The position that the person was in at the time of the suspected aspiration is very important. Uh, you know, if you have a, this happened to me once where the, you know, the patient was a elderly lady with a, a real bigger scoliosis, left leaning scoliosis, you know, Yet, because she was admitted and had a right basilar infiltrate, which essentially meant she had to aspirate uphill, yeah. uh, it was clear that these uh, infiltrates could not have originated in the mouth if this is the position that she you know, is at when she's eating and drinking. Uh, so, right, exactly, posture, position. In fact, if you go back to these, uh, these um, trauma scenes where a person is found having had an emesis and they're down for an unknown period of time in the supine position, an aspirate emesis, it's going to be the posterior segments that are involved. And so, yeah, the, the position of the patient at the time of suspected aspiration and the location of the infiltrates need to be evaluated. It's, it's really fairly easy, though. All we have to do is think of gravity. You know, gravity is always pulling towards the center of the earth. So whatever the pe person's position was relative to the center of the earth is where, you know, water runs downhill. So it's a, it, it's, it, it is a, an additional piece of information that's helpful. Okay. So there's no specific buzzwords on a chest x-ray that scream, this patient has aspiration pneumonia. Chest radiography is, un, um, is one factor, and the ATS recommends it be more heavily weighted. I mean, it is the most heavily weighted factor. 
but the patient should also develop elevated white blood cell count. Uh, you know, usually typically above 11,000 is considered in most labs the abnormally high range. Uh, they should have a fever. They should have a cough, obviously, um, which is another, another thing altogether. We can talk about clinical exams if you want and how the sign of a cough can be very misleading. I'd love to get into that. Yes. Yeah, that's one of my favorites. Okay, great. Uh, and then, uh, so those three are very important. Spe- uh, uh, leukocytosis, chest film, and, uh, you know, fever, evidence of infection. Uh, bacteriology is helpful too, but we're never going to see that because the majority of people who have pneumonia never, well, let's put it this way. When a person is asked to give a sputum specimen, it's typically done in the usual, you know, here's spit into this cup method. And so if we're looking for oral pathogens in the lung, well, naturally, when they, you know, expectorate a sputum sample, it's going through the mouth anyway to pick up those pathogens. So that's an unreliable sample. Check the sputum sample, and if it was produced that way, just ignore it. However, people who have been intubated uh, or have tracheostomy and undergo bronchoscopic retrieval of sputum specimens using a protective specimen container, so like a BAL brushing, um, uh, those samples are a little bit more easy to, you know, um, um, interpret as confirming or, or refuting, you know, the, the bacterial source. But largely, we're not going to be able to use sputum uh, because it's going to be unavailable. So I would say not just x-ray. I don't think there's a single thing with x-ray that would tell you, yes, this person aspirated or not. If we combine that with some other things. So here's a good one. Uh, uh, basal or infiltrates in a person who had a stroke two years ago, right? Uh, you know, the, here's a scenario we saw not too long ago where there was an elderly lady who was very healthy her whole life, lived in her own home, you know, drives to the, drives to church and to the grocery store and whatnot, and um, she had a stroke. And uh, the family um, noticed that, you know, ever since the stroke, she's got like asthma, you know, she's got asthma all the time and bronchitis and all these things. And, you know, we kind of forget that, you know, when we aspirate something, there's a bunch of tubes between the alveoli and the mouth called, you know, the airways, the trachea and all of the bronchi. And so bronchial and tracheal uh, inflammation can be uh, suspicious for chronic smaller volume aspiration. Another area of the, of the lung sets, um, undervalued as a potential location for aspirated, you know, stuff uh, is an area called the hilum. Um, the hilum is the is the medial surface of the lung that faces the heart. It's where the major blood vessels going into and coming out of the heart, and then the airways, the three, the two mainstem bronchi, enter each lung. Uh, you know, basilar infiltrates will be caused by large volume aspiration. Gravity will pull it downward to the bottom. And if there's enough volume, it's going to make it there. But I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't see a whole lot of people who copiously aspirate every time they swallow. It's usually infrequent small amounts, which are going to enter the airway, coat the airway. If their volume increases enough, gravity will pull it downward. But the point is, these smaller volumes are going to accumulate at the entrance to the lung, which is the area called the hilum. And so hilar infiltrates are, is another, are, are another um, um, radiographic sign of possible aspiration-related uh, um, infiltrates. Interesting. I did not know that. Yep. Thanks, Jim. Yep. Cool. Sure. All right. Yep. Well, let's talk about cough then. Oh, coughing. Okay. Well, I mean, <laughs> so I always tell this story when I do a talk, but, uh, you know, I, I have students in the clinic. And so we 
construct these scenarios for them to learn. And eventually um, we have to take them out of the, you know, me watching them all the time uh, phase to, well, go do it yourself and see what happens. Naturally, I always see the patient before they do, and they don't know that. But anyway, um, and so the student was instructed to perform this, you know, clinical exam, inpatient clinical exam. And long story short, uh, after the exam, the clinician returns, and I said, well, what, what happened? And, and uh, she tells me all of the observations that she made, which were very accurate. Um, and then I asked, well, tell me what happened with the, uh, the swallowing portion of your exam. And she said, well, when I, you know, gave the person whatever it was, water, to swallow, he coughed. And, uh, and he did again. And I said, oh, good, good catch. And then I asked the following question. Now, was the patient coughing at any other time during your visit? Now, I'd already been there. Uh, this patient was coughing every minute, no matter what. Yeah. It was a constant cough. And so I think uh, the, the point being, you know, when we see a, a cough during swallowing, we, we say, aha, but we forget to listen to whether the cough is happening other, other times. Um, and that's a huge clue. People with pneumonia cough. People with the flu cough. People with COPD cough. And sometimes coughing alone is not a very good sole uh, reason to make a diagnosis of, of dysphagia. It can be obvious, but it can also be a, a it can also trick us into thinking something isn't there. Um, so I think that's a big caveat is, there, you know, screening is one thing. So screening, one sign, fail. That, that's okay. Uh, a clinical assessment is multifactorial and multidimensional. And there needs to be, I look at the clinical evaluation as a, a, a whole bunch of screening tests. And essentially each thing we do, so stick out the tongue, tongue deviates one way, that's a fail you know, uh, and, and so forth. Each one of those things is a fail. And if, if we get enough fails and they're in the right categories, then we have a much stronger suspicion that something uh, like dysphagia is happening. It can't just be one thing. I think we need to stop um, using single, single signs like a cough uh, as, as a strong sole diagnostic criteria. And, you know, likewise with things like Runny nose, sneezing, eyes watering, and all of this. These are other um, more or less mythological signs that um, many uh, that are used in, in many cases to diagnose dysphagia for people unnecessarily. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I think a better understanding of how, you know, the respiratory system responds to aspiration, where these circuits are that produce things like a sneeze reflex. You know, that's, a, that's a great paper. There's a great paper out there. Um, that describes the neural pathways to a sneeze. And there's just nothing in there that could possibly be, the only, the only possible relation is if the person has nasal or nasopharyngeal regurgitation and the nasal mucosa is irritated and the second branch of the trigeminal nerve responds with a, cop, with a, with a sneeze. You know, these are things I think we need to have a better um, grasp of as clinicians. So the filtering through all of these crazy things that are going on. So cough. All the time, none of the time, or once only when drinking, take your pick. All right. So let's get into kind of some of those other signs, too. So sneeze, what about like watery eyes? You know, um, the corneal reflex is mediated through the fifth nerve. Uh, um, in fact, uh, during neurological testing, neurologists will poke the patient's, you know, sclera, the white, white of the eye, with a, with a Q-tip or sometimes with their handkerchief. Back in the old days before physicians and dentists wore gloves, they would do that. Um, just kind of poke you with their hanky. Who knows where that? Oh God. Who knows where that's <laughs> <Yeah. from? laughs> 
Uh, and this, this corneal reflex is mediated through the trigeminal system. And so if we understand the physiology of the trigeminal system, we can see that it's really hard to connect the dots between uh, a sneeze and the larynx, trachea, uh, uh, and, um, and lungs, because there really is very little the pathway between those is so convoluted that it's hard to make a case for those being connected. Uh, sneeze, watery eyes. What's the other one? Um, runny nose. Oh, that's the other one. Yep. Runny nose. Yep. Okay. Like ever since I've been about, ever since I was around 50 years old, whenever I, I eat soup, I get a runny nose. So, oh gosh. so I'm, I mean, I would have like. No more soup for you. Yeah. I would have many feeding tubes by now. Yes. <laughs> the sign of aspiration. So, I mean, I think that it's just important to, that's where our educational system needs work. Um, you know, we are all in the same boat. We all had the same preparatory training before we got into school, such as it is. I mean, we're all at even playing field when it comes to that. Um, the problem is that it's, it's, since we're more heavily embedded in the medical setting, there's a lot more that needs to be understood about human physiology, not just, you know, about the neck uh, anatomy or not just, uh, Respiration for speech, you know, which is, is uh, an interesting term, but how the respiratory system works both at the ventilatory level and at the membrane level. Understanding those things makes the information in the medical record so intuitive to understand what might be going on um, and, and rational and objective. Um, so these, this is something that, um, uh, I mean, I would love it if uh, there were more pre-med level, you know, anatomy and physiology courses at the undergraduate level before um, those of us who go into this field, uh, you know, make a decision to do it. The argument has been made, oh, well, um, we might lose a lot of really good clinicians to medical school, to which I respond, great. Um, great. I would yeah. love, love having, <laughs> right? Wouldn't you love to have a physician in your hospital that wanted to be a speech pathologist once? Yes. Yes. <laughs> so I think that's <laughs> wonderful. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, so watery eyes, uh, sneezing, runny nose, all of these are just not enough to hang your hat on. What about O2? Because I was taught that if your O2 is below 85, then you're possibly aspirating. Well, you know, a patient with COPD has a baseline o SpO2 of 85. Uh, and so that's just a terrible marker. Yeah. Studies have been performed using pulse oximetry as a surrogate for, you know, I don't know, a, a gold standard for detecting aspiration. Um, and, and, have found some associations when people have later have swallow studies. But the point is that fluctuations of two to three and even 4% in pulse oximetry really are within the range of, of instrumental error, you know, noise and error. Um, uh, and, um, and, you know, you know what a pulse oximeter does is it's measuring, it's estimating hemoglobin carrying of oxygen at a, you know, fingertip level or wherever. And so it takes several seconds for blood that has just become oxygenated at the pulmonary capillary level to get down to the fingertip anyway. And so desaturation of a couple of percent during any given activity is really meaningless. I think you need to know the patient's baseline first, what their disease status is, why, what is the current condition? You know, we saw a lady, a man, sorry, just on Wednesday, who emesis at the, at the scene. So he had a massive aspiration pneumonitis. So naturally, his baseline pulse ox was going to be in the high 80s and low 90s. Uh, so whatever it is at baseline is fine. Just record it. Uh, but 
that the point is that desaturations are going to reflect either in increased oxygen um, uh, deprivation, I guess I should say, or accumulating carbon dioxide. Those things are not instantaneous. They don't happen instantaneously. So it's not a great surrogate. I think there's a couple of studies that show that if you combine pulse oximetry with several other clinical exam uh, observations that you have a little bit stronger predictive value. But all in all, using, I guess the rule of thumb is using any single marker uh, is just not supported. Yep. Yep. I guess that, that was the point I wanted you to make because I have, I had a, it was about last week I walked in and the SLP said, well, while she's eating her O2 stats are 84. So I put her on thick and liquids. Yeah. That's just, so I, my head just spun. So <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is a, so here's an example. Uh, um, I know that the pediatric and neonatal um, people who work in feeding will tell you that for frail infants, that yeah. eating and drinking and feeding is an aerobic activity. Now, anyone who goes running or rides their bike in an aerobic manner, uh, if they take their pulse ox, you're going to see your pulse ox running in the high 80s the whole time you're out there running, which is where it should be. You're, you're extracting lots of oxygen. Um and so the point is that for this particular patient and many others, the fact that they're eating and talking to you and doing things that to them may be aerobic, high intensity to, for them, they don't look high intensity to us, uh, may simply increase oxygen consumption and lower oxygen saturation. The nature of the activity is what's important. Uh, so that's just too bad. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> well, thank you for... Sure. Myth busting all of those for us. Sure. <laughs> if you or your facility is interested in using some sort of imaging uh, to diagnose dysphagia instead of relying on our unpredictable factors such as runny nose, watery eyes, uh, please check out our sponsor, EndoHD. EndoHD is a true high-definition endoscopy system created specifically for SLPs by an SLP for conducting fees studies. It's a true high-definition fees imaging system with HD image display and capture, crisp color image, unsurpassed digital clarity, HD image with better resolution than legacy systems, and you can view the details of the patient anatomy with a double the resolution of standard definition video. So contact www.ndohd.com forward slash contact to discuss your specific fee systems requirements, pricing, or to request a live product demonstration. All right. So I got one, one longer question here for you. I, I gave you a heads up of this, but um, Brenda Arend, our friend in the ICU in Washington, she'd been watching all your responses on SIG 13. So she kind of wanted you to dish about this a little more. But so the topic of high flow nasal cannula effects on the swallow. Yeah. Uh, the short answer is nobody has ever done that research, and the, and the rest of the answer is nobody ever will. Um, okay. <laughs> because the, the research question is this. Um, do high-flow nasal cannulas uh, lead to aspiration, uh, period? Okay, so the design of the study would be first, in a clinical setting, you would need people who are sick enough to need high-flow cannulas. And then you're basically saying, I want to see if this device blows food into their lungs. So no institutional review board would ever approve that study. So that's the reason that the, the question will never be definitively answered. Uh, people argue that you could uh, uh, evaluate, well, uh, investigate this question with healthy people, but healthy people aren't going to aspirate no matter what you do. Uh, the amount of pressure that... So the thing with high-flow nasal cannulas, first of all, there are tons of advantages to them from a respiratory standpoint. Uh, some people don't tolerate uh, CPAP or BiPAP masks very well. 
Um, these pressure CPAP and BiPAP systems are really, I mean, they're called non-invasive ventilation. It's very similar to, you know, uh, invasive orotracheal intubation. Uh, you know, the, the, the gasket around the mask is the same as the cuff in, in a trach tube or in an endotracheal tube. And these devices, these systems blow pressurized air into the airway. The numerous advantages from a pulmonary standpoint, number one, they provide some back pressure on the airways and alveoli to keep them inflated longer so that they have more exposure to the respiratory gas exchange. <clears throat> in other words, they, they can prevent atelectasis. Um, another advantage is, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, having having pressure, having back pressure on exhalation helps flush out carbon dioxide in dead spaces uh, in the respiratory system. So there's a ton of other advantages. Number three, it reduces the workload of breathing, just like a, you know, a ventilator does. So there are tons of respiratory advantages. But the bottom line is, when you're blowing gas into the nose at 60 or 70 liters per minute, there's a pressure associated with it. So in the same way that a mechanical ventilator uses positive pressure to blow air, so too to these uh, high-flow cannulas. Um, I sent you some citations, and this morning I was looking up a bunch of other ones that, that continue to confirm over and over again this principle. But, you know, CPAP, uh, when people snore and they get CPAP, you know, for sleep apnea, one, a, a common setting is five centimeters of water pressure. So it's a CPAP pressure. I once asked a pulmonary physician, at what level of positive airway pressure would you consider to be too high for one of your patients here in the ICU to be eating. And he said, I don't know, five or six centimeters. So that is CPAP pressure going to these high flow systems. Uh, they, they can pump air. Well, this pump's not the right word, but they can deliver gas at a high flow rate of anywhere up to 60 to 70 liters per minute. Uh, Park, uh, Park et al. did a study in 2006, and then they did another, 2009, sorry, and then they followed it up in 13 and confirmed their results the first time using uh, several different flow rates. Uh, they looked at this with healthy people too, and their research question was, what is the pressure in the airway, that pharyngeal airway, uh, when these devices are in use? Uh, and they went from 35, 35, I think it was 35, 50, 60, and 70 liters. Uh, at 35 liters per minute, the mean airway pressure, so that's the average um, across several breaths during inhalation, exhalation, all average together, was about three centimeters water pressure above atmospheric pressure. Now, when, when, when a person doesn't have one of these things on, the pressure in the airway when they're not inhaling or exhaling is equal to atmospheric pressure. So any number above zero atmospheric pressure is a positive pressure like a ventilator. Um, looking at the peak waveforms of these uh, individuals who underwent this study, uh, the peak uh, pharyngeal airway pressure at 35 liters per minute was around four to five centimeters of water pressure, which is CPAP pressure. Uh, the, their, 13, their 2013 study actually um, put together a little formula that estimated the amount of additional pressure that each 10 liters per minute of high flow adds to the pharyngeal airway circuit. And the rule of thumb is more or less for every 10 liters uh, per minute of increased flow rate, we're adding about one centimeter of water pressure. So if you go from 35, where the mean pressure is 2.7, up to 70 liters per minute, you've added four times one, so four centimeters of water pressure, and we're peaking up around six or seven centimeters of water pressure. Now, for a healthy person, they can handle that. They can contain the material in the mouth, and they don't have particles hanging around in the pharynx that can be blown into the airway. Um, 
but for an old frail person, people aren't on these things because they're healthy. So yeah. arguably nobody on a high flow system is a healthy person. Um, and so factoring in all of the frailty issues and decompensation, the, the issue is that it's possible that the additional flow rate and pressure um, delivered by these devices may endanger the airway. Um, there's even a, there's a, uh, a durable medical equipment company. I think it's called Respicare. You can find it on the internet. And, you know, the, so they sell CPAP machines and lease them and whatnot. And, you know, right there on their instructions to patients, it says, do not eat or drink while using, this is for CPAP, for, for sleep apnea, but the same principle. While using your CPAP machine, it may blow food into your lungs. So, I mean, if it's okay for them, it makes me have a little more concern. Having said all of that, you and I and probably everyone out there has seen a patient who does just fine on a high flow system. Uh, a lot of the um, argument about high flow being always being safe is that, oh, well, everybody, everybody on high flow systems, not everybody, but watch the patient and see if they're breathing with their mouth open or closed. Okay. In a high flow system, the mouth is open. The gas is just blowing right out of their mouth. So there isn't really that much pharyngeal air pressure. Well, guess what? When people swallow, the mouth is closed. And so 100% of the pressure is being delivered directly to the airway during the oral preparatory stage and during the oral transit stage and during the onset of the pharyngeal stage before the larynx closes. So, you know, if you have enough factors indicating that person is acceptably frail and decompensated, have a high respiratory rate, um, I mean, it's just... It's just too much. Now, we don't just walk away and say, well, sorry, give them a two. Um, what we do is go to the attending pulmonologist and we say, hey, look, you know, here's the concerns. And I like leaving articles lying around the nurse's station, too, just in case. <laughs> You're one of those. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I uh, said, so we have some concerns and go through the reasons. And then we ask, look, it takes about 20 minutes to eat a meal. What do you say if we take off the high flow and put them on a low flow system at, you know, 10 liters, at whatever you tell us what to start with. And we will titrate the oxygen delivery to maintain SATs above, you know, 90, 92% during this examination. And we'll try to make a determination if using that device for the prescribed amount of time it would take to eat a meal. Uh, does the patient maintain adequate oxygenation without a steep increase in their respiratory rate? Um, and so we've done that numerous times just to find that the patient did fine with these lower flow devices. And then if necessary, if they were fatiguing, put them back on the high flow afterwards. Uh, this can ov often obviate the need for temporary feeding tubes uh, and things like that. So I think it's not enough to just say the pressure is too high, uh, call me when it's you know, not being used anymore, but rather try to come up with pragmatic alternatives to this to the situation because these are people who are in a state of either recovering pulmonary function or they're in a static non-reversible uh, situation like uh, end-stage COPD. So work with those guys, those physicians, um, not just guys, but physicians uh, in, the, in the ICUs to try to um, come up with pragmatic solutions for these problems. All right. I love it. Thank you. Yep. Um, anything else you want to chat about for one last question? Uh, I mean, you don't want to get me started. Um, <laughs> I have a lot to say about um, our educational system and, and ways that we, moving forward we could fix it. I think um, ASHA has finally come out with a call for comments 
regarding the possibility of elevating the entry-level degree to a clinical doctorate level. And I think everybody should take a look at that and, and uh, comment about it. Anyone who, you know, you were commenting and we were talking earlier about preparatory education, any, any people in our profession who believe that, you know, they, they, like me, I would be one of them, who believe they didn't really get good preparation in human physiology and anatomy prior to going into speech pathology, um, should be telling Asher these things. Yeah. Uh, they, they need input. Um, clinical doctorate is not something to be afraid of. And I don't think it's solely a response to all of the other professions elevating their entry level to a doctorate. I think this is a long time coming. Um, we've been struggling with increasing the rigor of the master's level programs, but ASHA is locked into this two-year master's thing. Um, and so until we get to the point where we acknowledge that either some things have to be strongly delivered at the undergraduate level or we have to add those things to the graduate level, uh, it's going to be like this. So we have to, that's why we're here now. We have to yeah. personally yeah. gain knowledge and, and deploy it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know, you know, just to think that you could go through grad school, just get the bare minimum requirements, do all your externships in the school, and then all of a sudden go work full time in an ICU somewhere. Yeah. You know, that's just horrifying. There should be a law. Um, about that. For example, I think what you just talked about is, I think there should be a law against that. And likewise, there should be a law against me working in the school. Yeah. Yeah. It's equally difficult to work in the school um, for a person who has no idea what's going on there. Right. No background. So I think it goes both ways. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks for keeping that rant to a minimum, Jim. Yeah, you bet. (laughs) That's the last time you'll ever hear me keep it. Um, all right. So one final question is there, and I asked everybody this, is there a specific paper or piece of research or something that had a huge effect on your practice or changed the way you practiced? Yes. Uh, in 2001, Paul Merrick, who um, used to be uh, on our faculty in the pulmonary and critical care service, he published an article in the New England Journal of Medicine called Aspiration Pneumonia and Aspiration Pneumonitis. So that's a, that's a pretty high quality journal I hear. Uh, it's not, it's not a rag. It's not, it's not a, um, uh, one of those, um, grocery store, uh, okay. <laughs> New England journals got a pretty high rank, I guess. Okay. Yeah. And, um, he, he ticked off every one of these little characteristics, clinical signs, medical record data that, uh, the clinician should be using to tick off to determine one versus the other. He talks very clearly about, oral colonization being a factor. In fact, we even had him at, uh, as a speaker at Meet the Masters a few years ago to talk about his stuff. Uh, compared and contrast aspiration pneumonia with uh, emesis-related pneumonitis, uh, the way that it's medically managed. He talks about swallowing and dysphagia in this article. And it was it really uh, made me very much more interested in learning as much as I could about this because what it taught me, and talking to people like him, what it taught me was that physicians especially ICU physicians expect the speech language pathologist to function at the level of a physician, almost as a primary care provider for dysphagia. So it's not just managing the symptom of dysphagia, but it's determining what is the likely cause of this? What are some of the potential medical and health outcomes related to it? And what are the risks? Um, Risk management is what physicians do. Excuse me. And um, something we need to do better and that Merrick and others have, have taught me is to be okay with acceptable risk. 
Um, you know, a lot of uh, clinicians want to do, set up as their goal, you know, eliminate aspiration. Well, sorry, but that's not going to happen. Uh, you know, if you have a room of 100 people and you say, have any of you ever choked when you're drinking water, 95 hands will go up. So eliminating aspiration is not a realistic goal. And, you know, reducing the frequency of pneumonia, lowering the uh, length of stay of people who have pneumonia, uh, uh, increasing life expectancy by having fewer of these conditions. That's the kind of stuff that this, this paper and other studies and, and just kind of digging into the research um, have kind of helped me understand a lot better. Um, the last thing would be talking about articles. Um, when trying to physician, people email me all the time and they say, you know, the physicians in my hospital want me to give them evidence about blah, blah, blah. If you're going to do that, do it. But don't do it with uh, studies that are authored by solely speech-language pathologists. Go to, you know, chest and the annals of thoracic surgery and pulmonary medicine and go to journals and, and studies that had strong physician participation because it'll make it more credible in their eyes. And then the fact that we understand these studies um, helps them understand that we are doing our best to function at that level of a primary care provider for dysphagia. Uh, anyway, so Merrick, uh, and then the second article was Merrick and Kaplan. I gave you a little bibliography earlier, but those two um, are very um, important. All right. Awesome. Yeah, I'll include those in the show notes. So thank you. Cool. All right. Thanks so much, Jim. You bet. Thanks this for- been uh, fantastic. Yeah, this is fun. Let's do it again sometime. How about tomorrow? All right. Sounds good. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on SwallowYourPridePodcast.com, where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening.